Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. All engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and with Julia Ravey. Coming up, how close are we to being able to grow complete new arms and legs? New research looks very promising in this direction. And a breakthrough in sight restoration. We take a look at the patient who's received a bionic eye. Plus, leaked lab experiment or a natural spillover from the wild? Where did COVID-19 come from? We'll explore the evidence. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, might we be on the verge of being able to regrow lost body parts? At the moment, unless you're a salamander, which can regenerate whole chunks of itself, if you lose a limb or any complex body part for that matter, it won't grow back. But that doesn't mean it can't. The cells of our bodies have, as Michael Levin from Tufts University puts it, got the collective know-how for doing this. It's just a question of telling them to use it rather than reverting to the default option, which is to seal up a wound with a scar. After all, our entire bodies built themselves within the space of just 40 weeks from a single fertilised egg. So can we reactivate certain parts of that same developmental programme to put ourselves right? In frogs, at least, as he explains to Chris, Michael Levin thinks he can. We have in our lab discovered uh, certain signals, triggers, in particular bioelectric ones, that kickstart very complex downstream programs such as making eyes and, and brains and other things. And so our goal is to identify these triggers that convince the cells to go to a regeneration route as opposed to a scarring route. In this instance, you were looking at limb regeneration in an amphibian. So talk us through what you actually did. What would happen if you didn't intervene and what actually happened when you did? So we chose the frog Xenopus labus. This is a frog species that's used for a lot of work in, in immunology and cancer and developmental biology and neuroscience. And we used adult animals. So these are very large frogs. They do not regenerate proper legs back if they're lost. And what we wanted to do was to provide two things. We wanted to provide a localized microenvironment to the wound. So control very tightly the environment around that wound site to convince these cells that they were in a safe uh, circumstance that they could go on to regenerate and then provide some drugs, which would activate certain pathways that would shift that decision point towards regeneration. And so there's a a thing called a bioreactor, which contains a a silk-based gel, which carries some of the drugs that is fit onto the amputation wound. It stays on for just 24 hours. And the leg growth is apparent well over a year after that process. So if you just removed a limb from one of these animals normally, they would get very little regeneration. But you put this silk-soaked cocktail onto the wound site just for a day, and then you get something that continues to develop for a year. Correct. Normally, at best, what they would make is this little flap of tissue that is quite soft. It's, it, it has no uh, no feeling to it. It has no ability to be used for um, to support weight or anything like that. It's just this little flap of tissue. When you confront these cells with a bioreactor carrying these drugs in the first 24 hours, you trigger a very lengthy and very complex patterning process that results in lots of new tissue growth, bone growth, uh, nerve growth, blood vessels, and ultimately a pretty good limb that is functional. It's both uh, sensitive to touch and it's motile. The animal can use it to get around. How does the leg know how big the frog is? In other words, it's going to grow. It's going to keep growing for a year. So how does it know when to stop? 
That's an outstanding question that is actually very poorly understood. It's the same question as asking how do the cells of a frog know how big the frog uh, should be in the first place in order to make the frog during embryogenesis. Frankly, we still don't really understand that. And the growth does stop. It's not you're going to end up with a giant leg with a little frog attached at the end of this. It does actually make a a frog-sized matched replacement body part. That's correct. The body part is, is, is absolutely scaled properly to the rest of the tissue. Yeah. And have you taken this beyond frogs yet? Because we know that many of the factors that make these sorts of things happen in frogs, they exist in us as well, don't they? So have you now started to try this on more complicated, higher animals to see if the same can occur? Yes, that's exactly our next steps. We have a spin-off uh, company called Morphaceuticals Inc., whose mission is to uh, try to take this technology towards a point where someday it will be useful for therapeutics in human patients. And we are just beginning now work in uh, mammalian models. What about if you come back to people that had their injury years ago? Because in this instance, you make the injury while the wound is fresh, you apply the bioreactor to it for that 24 hour period. What would happen if you went back to a frog that lost a limb a year ago? Would actually the window have closed by then? It's too late. It's a good question. Uh, We don't know because we haven't done it yet, but I don't believe it would be too late. I think at worst, you might have to reopen uh, a a, a cut surface there. But I think the fundamentals which make this possible are still there. In other words, you still have cells there that have all of the information needed to know what a correct frog looks like. And all of these cells are constantly undergoing maintenance and keeping that frog together, despite the fact that individual cells are always aging and dying and uh, uh, keeping, keeping cells from turning uh, cancerous and so on. That, that type of homeostasis, that, that, that ability of these cells to continue to work together towards maintaining a good organism is always there. And I think that uh, we, if, if once, once we really crack some of the big scientific questions here, we would be able to trigger that even long after the original injury. Well, let's hope they can. Amazing work, isn't it? Michael Levin there. Well, now on to another way to repair the body and a breakthrough in site restoration. A new bionic eye system has been successfully implanted in a patient in the UK. The recipient was a woman with a condition called age-related macular degeneration, which progressively robs victims of their central vision, greatly reducing their quality of life. I spoke to eye surgeon Mahi Muket, who performed the implant surgery to find out more. At Murfield's last week, there was a patient who I had implanted an electronic chip in December and her eye had settled from the operation. So she has a condition called dry age-related macular degeneration, where she's missing the very centre of the eye in a particularly large area. So there isn't any treatment for this. So our clinical trial is looking to implant a device that essentially replaces the light-sensitive cells in that part of the eye. And the good news was that the electronic chip was working 100%. And she actually was very quick to pick up how to use the system. How does this bionic eye implant work? So it's a pair of glasses that the, the patient wears. There is a small video camera and it captures about 50 to 40 degrees. That is then passed from the glasses down to a small pocket computer that sits on the patient's waist. And then that can be tuned and that then sends a much cleaner image to the glasses. The signals are then beamed using near-infrared light inside the eye, directly over the actual electronic chip. It's about the thinness of a human hair, so it's very, very tiny. And we have these specialised technicians that will help her to use the device and start to scan her visual world. Why is it electrical signals that get sent to this chip? It's a bit like solar panels. So out in the desert, you may see these cells called photovoltaic cells. That's a technical term, but they're essentially small electrodes, they're little cells. So the electronic chip has 300, I think, 78 of these small electrodes. They're called pixels. The near-infrared light from the glasses is beamed onto the chip that then charges up these small electrodes to start working. You then have little currents that run through the chip. And then the tissue surrounding the chip inside her retina starts to pick up these signals. And then they start to work. And then the network kicks off. And all the human function inside the eye helps to take these signals 
process them and they go down the optic nerve to the brain. Imagine you're looking at something, you know, like a letterbox. You, you see it upright, you see it in the right direction. That's to do with all the processing inside the eye. Because if you didn't have that, it might be lying on its side or upside down. So what we find with the chip is that patients are able in a previous trial to see everything in the right orientation. So that's due to the processing. So that's the chip working with the uh, cells of the eye. Amazing. So it's sort of for the cells that I'm missing, it's plugging that gap and allowing you to still patch in the signal to the brain. Exactly, yeah. How clear is the vision that you get from it? So if I was looking at an eye chart, what line would I be able to read if I had this chip in place? From seeing just shadows, they were able to recognise individual letters and they were also able to scan words. So if you imagine a patient that has no vision in the centre, it's completely dark, they're starting to pick up words and letters. We anticipate that perhaps they could pick up about two lines on the chart, but it's such a small study that now the European study will look at lots of different people in lots of different countries, and then you put all the results together, and that will give you a much better, more accurate result from the trial. You mentioned that there's trials going on now for using this chip. What more needs to be done before the technology is more widely rolled out? So the first one was what's called a first in humans. So you put the device into patients to actually see if it works. And then once you know it's safe, you run them over a much larger group of patients and then you follow them up during the study. So it's a three-year study. So the results usually come out towards the end of the study period. And at that point, people are then preparing the next steps. So once we see the results already, the next step's being planned. It really does sound like life-changing technology. How do you think devices like this will change the field of sight restoration? Well, I think for this particular condition, where you probably read there is no treatment available, lots of treatments have tried, have failed. If you can restore some form of vision for a patient that's essentially blind in that eye, it can give a significant improvement in their quality of, of life. And we will keep an eye on the progress of that very exciting technique in the months ahead. That was Mahi Muket. Now, speaking of eyes and what we can see, there's a growing body of evidence that birds can detect magnetic fields like the one around planet Earth, possibly by seeing them. And this, researchers think, accounts for how migrating birds like reed warblers manage to find their way seemingly unerringly halfway around the planet. But it's more subtle than just using the magnetic field like some kind of compass. What Oxford University's Joe Wynne thinks is happening is that the birds are pre-programmed by their upbringing to fly in a certain direction, but they use the angle or inclination of the Earth's magnetic field to work out how far north or south they've travelled so they then know when to stop. Anushka Handa reports. 1% left on my phone. No, 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 no. Phone's dead. Maps is dead. How on earth do I get home? I wouldn't have to worry about this as a songbird. The Earth's magnetic field is key to guiding birds on their journey, but it changes year by year. So how do reed warblers, a type of songbird, know exactly where to fly home to? If the magnetic field changes year on year, surely they'd also get lost, like me. A study involving 80 years' worth of data on travel of reed warblers has given us an inclination of how these birds find their way home. Joe Wynn tells us more. We found that birds pay attention to something called inclination. Magnetic inclination is the angle between the Earth's magnetic field and the Earth's surface. And this is one of a number of cues that can be extracted from the Earth's magnetic field. What the magnetic inclination acts essentially as a stop sign for these birds, is that right? Yes. I mean, the big problem with using a single cue is that there are lots of places on Earth with the same magnetic inclination value. In the case of inclination specifically, then because it varies with latitude, all the points on the same latitude have more or less the same inclination. And so the question we had when we found that birds seemed to be following inclination was, well, they have to use something else, surely. Birds would be travelling along an already determined direction. They probably would inherit it genetically. They would be travelling in this direction and they would wait until they hit the magnetic inclination value that they thought represented their home and then they stop. The inclination is the same in, in different areas of the Earth. And how do they know that 
this is the place that's home and not on the other side of the world that has exactly the same inclination. I kind of like to think about this a little bit like those little cars that you have as a kid. You sort of wind them back and then you release them. And so the reed warbler is a little bit like the small car in the sense that if you, when it's released, it travels in a straight line. And I kind of imagine the inclination a little bit like a sort of brick wall. The, the little car hits the wall and then it stops. And in the same way, the reed warblers travel in a straight line until they encounter the inclination that they think represents their breeding site and then they stop. We understand very well that songbirds probably inherit the direction that they go in when they leave the nest for the first time and they're going south. And so it's not unreasonable to suggest that such a mechanism might also help them on return migration. But it's obviously very hard to say with the data that we've got. Are there any other animals that have these magnetic compasses and can find their way home using the Earth's magnetic field? There's some good evidence for the use of magnetic sensitivity in sea turtles. Sea turtles use the Earth's magnetic field to remember where to return to. And there's similarly some pretty good evidence in salmon for the use of magnetoreception in order to find where they spawned. Now, if only Nemo was a salmon, he'd have no problem getting home. That was Anushka Handa speaking with Joe Wynn. The paper was published earlier this week in Science. From baffling British weather... The sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Now, still to come in this hour... This group of researchers say that they're going to put horns on horses and about two years later, a unicorn shows up in their city. Two years on from the time when it first emerged in Wuhan, are we any closer to uncovering the origins of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic? And veganuary, are meat substitutes actually making any difference to the meat market? But first, scientists in Cambridge announced this week the discovery in Uganda of a new species of insect that belongs to a group so rare that its closest known relative was last seen in 1969. The new species is a leafhopper. These animals drink sap from plants and in turn are food for birds, beetles and spiders. Alvin Heldon from Anglia Ruskin University was doing field work when he made what some have dubbed this once-in-a-lifetime discovery. Tell us what the leafhopper looks like, Alvin. You probably know what a cicada is. It's like a, a miniature cicada and this particular one looks a little bit odd for a leafhopper in addition. It's a little bit humpbacked. They're generally not that humpbacked. It's quite dark in colour. Most are quite lighter. And it's got a sort of metallic sheen to particularly its wings, which is really quite unusual too. How did you stumble across this one? Okay, I had a little project going trying to find out the kind of species that existed at uh, a national park in Uganda called Chibale. And I was sampling for leafhoppers and I was using a sweet net through some bushy vegetation. And I came across this one and I thought it looked unusual, but I didn't know for certain what it was. It was only when I got it back to the UK and I was able to look through various identification guides. I came across a drawing looking very similar to this and I thought, ah, that's it. And so I followed that up and then discovered it, it was very rare indeed. How do you know it's a new species, though? Obviously, you have to kind of do some research into the literature, see if anybody's found anything similar before, or see if somebody found something really quite similar in the same very close group. But then you have to actually look at the detailed structures, particularly in, in leafhoppers, you really have to look at male genital structures. So really, you're talking about the, the penis and the associated structures, and you have to look at that and compare it with other specimens of other species. And when I did that, I found that this one was unique, and it was different from the very close relative that had been found before. Now, the fact that you've discovered something so rare, does that mean that you are the world's luckiest scientist? Or does this mean actually they were rare once, but in fact, perhaps conservation efforts, uh, other sorts of bioremediation efforts to restore environments are working? And in fact, they're now becoming more common than they were. Well, to be honest, we really don't know. Only three individuals of this particular 
small group of leafhoppers has ever been found. And we don't know why it's they are so rarely found. Is it because they are really rare and there are just so few of them? Or is it we're just not looking in the right places? Uh, and maybe it's just we, we, we don't find them because we don't look in the right places, but we don't know what those places are. We know very, very little about these particular insect and why it might be rare. And we can't really say anything about how successful the conservation is. Where it was found is in a national park called Chibali National Park, which is well protected and well it's treated very well by the local people in terms that they respect the boundaries of the national park pretty well. So it's in a fairly safe place. But of course, surrounding that national park has been really badly deforested in many ways. Well, let's hope that it doesn't deforest any further. Thanks for sharing the lovely discovery with us, though, Alvin. That's Alvin Holden, and you can read more about his big scientific leap forward in the journal Zootaxa. You may have missed it, but it is the end of the January, the month, where we're encouraged to eschew meat in favour of meat-free meals. Perhaps you gave it a go. We keep hearing about how bad the meat industry is for the climate, So has the substitute meat industry actually made any difference to the amount of meat we eat? Harry Lewis has been down to his local deli to find out. So I'm here at my local Sainsbury's and there's a good half aisle, I'd say, that's been just given over to these meat substitutes. Uh, it's quite a range as well. You've got your burgers, you've got your no chicken chicken pieces, your no ham ham slices, eight meat-free smoked bacon rashers, NYC deli pastrami-style sandwich slices. I mean, what's that? I don't even... What is that one made of? What is that made of? Made with mycoprotein. Mycoprotein? I don't, I don't even know what that is. I have to look that one up. We've probably all seen it over the past decade or so. These substitutes, or not necessarily even substitutes, just vegetable alternatives, have become pretty commonplace. And it feels like more and more of the aisle is being handed over to them. One person that does know if this increase in product is having an impact on the market is Stacey Payette from Vargenega University. She's the programme manager of Proteins for Life. That phenomenon that you have observed is pretty common across most of uh, Western Europe, North America right now. In almost all of those countries, we're seeing growth upwards of 8% year on year in this category, which is extraordinary for the, for the food market. Yeah, it seems massive for, for this industry, 8%. Do we know where that extra food is going? Obviously, for those replacements in particular, the intention is to take over the market from meat. Do we see a correlation in, the, in a reduction of meat consumption as these different brands increase in their sales? Not yet, is my answer. We're not seeing a corresponding decline in meat consumption across those countries where we're seeing an increase in sales in the plant-based alternatives yet. Why aren't we seeing that correlation? What is happening? Is there just more food on the market? Well, for one thing, I think uh, these products are still filling a niche. So if we look at the global protein market, uh, these alternatives are growing fast, but from a small starting point. So they represent less than 2% of the global market right now. And then, you know, the next question is, how are people using these products? And the hope, of course, is that you're going to to use a plant-based burger to replace a a meat burger. Um, But we just don't know yet if that's what's happening. Do we have any theories as to the patterns of consumption that are going on behind closed doors? We do have some theories. There's one one possibility, which is what we call the, the halo effect. And we know that from the, for example, the energy transition, that we might be sort of overcompensating and rewarding ourselves in a way that negates the, the good effect. For example, if you, you, know, you bought energy saving light bulbs, you might think to yourself, well, in that case, I can just take my car and drive back and forth to the supermarket because I'm saving over here. Um, and what we tend to do is overcompensate or over reward ourselves. It's possible that that's happening here, that people are taking, for example, a meatless Monday, but at, you know, Friday evening, they're taking a double portion of meat to compensate. Another option is that there are genuinely people who are reducing their meat consumption, uh, you know, in one segment of society, but another segment of society that is, you know, overcompensating or actually increasing their meat consumption and that that is sort of balancing it out. And for that reason, we're not seeing the decline show up.
And I suppose the difficulty arises here because there are so many variables to consider. Absolutely. People's behavior is very complex. And, you know, the easiest method that we have to ask people about their behavior is to ask them. In the Netherlands, two thirds of people tell us that they're actively reducing their meat consumption, but that just doesn't square with the numbers <laughs> that we have. So asking people is not the effective method to, to measure what's really happening. I think one of the most attractive components to going meatless as well definitely for some of the vegetarians that I know, is that it can be quite a cheap way to eat. So my only thought is that over the past decade, these products have remained pretty pricey for something that's vegetable-based. Do we expect that to decrease in the future, Stacey? You know, one reason for, for them being expensive at the moment is what I said before, that they are still quite a small piece of the market. They're still rather niche And we know that producing things on a large scale is always more cost effective than producing a a small scale or a niche product. So there's good reason to hope that the price will come down. Food for thought there, isn't it? Thanks very much to Harry Lewis. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Right now, you're with your favourite science show, and that's The Naked Scientists with Julia Ravey and Chris Smith. And for the rest of the show this week... We are talking origins of COVID-19. Now, it's hard to believe that it's been almost two years since a pandemic was declared for a new virus that could cause serious respiratory disease. Although the virus has changed and caused several waves of infection since early 2020, the debate around where the original virus came from continues to rage on. While the initial focus of these investigations honed in on trying to find the animal intermediates from which the virus jumped through to get to humans, more recently talks of a lab leak have started to surface. So which theory is right? Well, we have to start back at the beginning. 103 people died just in Hubei province alone. The Philippines has reported the first death from the new coronavirus outside of China. The coronavirus has hit the UK. Two cases now in England. I'm the first person with coronavirus to die in the UK. You must stay at home. The breaking news is the first coronavirus... Throughout history, we have faced constant threat from disease outbreaks. Tiny pathogens, invisible to the naked eye, can hijack our systems use our cells as breeding grounds to increase their numbers and leave devastation in their wake. Each one of these outbreaks, from a global pandemic to a few cases in a community, leaves a trail, though, a clue as to where it's come from. And that is its genetic material. And for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, this code has been at the centre of trying to crack how and where this virus originated. So SARS-CoV-2 is a kind of virus known as an RNA virus. That is David Matthews, a professor of virology at the University of Bristol, who specialises in the study of coronaviruses. We were working on coronaviruses before the pandemic started, so we immediately made requests uh, to see if we'd get hold of SARS-CoV-2 and start to chip in our expertise. Like a recipe book, genetic material encodes the instructions for life, from humans to dogs to mice, plants, bacteria and viruses. SARS-CoV-2 is generated from a 30,000-letter-long set of instructions that are written using a form of genetic material that's a chemical relative of DNA that's called RNA. And just as the Human Genome Project has helped to reveal how our cells work, the coronavirus RNA code can tell us about the properties of SARS-CoV-2. But reading the viral genetic code is not as simple as opening that recipe book at a certain page and scanning through – It requires specialist equipment and experts like David to translate its meaning. As well as using genetic material as a blueprint to predict how a virus might act, it can also be used to trace where it came from. Like humans, a virus is a family tree, a line from which it was descended. And if you look at your parents or siblings or cousins or grandparents, 
your genetic code will be more similar to those members of your family than it would be to, say, a stranger in the street. Although we are all human and our genetic instructions contain the same recipes, small spelling mistakes, a change letter here and there, generates different outcomes when these instructions are followed. Those spelling mistakes or mutations are more similar between family members, though, than strangers, meaning we can trace our lineage by comparing our genetics. And viruses are just the same. What happened at the beginning, of course, is that they extracted the RNA from the early patients and they sequenced it. And what you do then is you compare the sequence of the genome that you've got with all the other genomes of all other known viruses. David Matthews, and that is how you track down the closest relatives of a new virus to find out where it may have come from and how it's emerged. Aris Katsarakis from the University of Oxford works on how this trail of genetic breadcrumbs can be used to lead us back up the evolutionary tree to find the ancestors and therefore the sources of diseases like COVID-19. Let's say... You see a virus in a human, and it's incredibly similar in terms of sequence data to a virus in a mouse. You may conclude that there has been some sort of transmission between those two species in, in recent history. The more similar a virus's code, the more closely related they are. And if we find the parent, we can crack the mystery of where this virus, SARS-CoV-2, which caused one of the most significant pandemics in our history, originated. But before we explore COVID-19's origins further and what these genetic analyses are and aren't telling us, it's helpful to step back a bit and consider the other, earlier examples of coronaviruses that have made the leap into humans so we can ask whether COVID-19 is any different. The first encounter was back in 2002 with the coronavirus that became known as SARS, short for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which spread around the world from China and circulated for about a year, infecting thousands of people and causing hundreds of deaths. The other, which came a bit later, is called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was first picked up in that geography. Matt Ridley, science journalist and co-author of the book Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19, explains. So the world first became aware of SARS in February 2003, but it quickly became apparent that people had been picking it up back as far back as November the previous year. By May 2003, scientists had worked out that the early cases were mostly people who were handling food or were chefs, and that certain animals seemed to be carrying the virus, in particular civets, palm civets. And by the summer of 2004, testing wildlife had revealed that bats were carrying a virus that was ancestral to both the civet version and the human version. MERS was first detected in 2012, and at first there was something of a mystery as to where it was coming from. There was only one case initially, but fairly quickly, within a few months, it was clear that the people who were handling camels were picking up the virus more than other people. And so camels were tested and found to be carrying the virus. It was later determined that the ancestral virus lives in bats, so probably the camels had picked it up from bats, although no direct evidence for that has ever been found. While these outbreaks occurred in two geographically distinct locations and a decade apart, the origins of both outbreaks do share remarkable similarities. Bat to animal to person in both SARS and MERS was very quickly established. Infections that jump from one species to another are called zoonoses, and although viruses carry their own genetic code, they're too small to carry along the machinery that they also need to copy themselves. It's a bit like having an IKEA instruction manual without the flat pack. The genetic code is useless for growing new viruses unless it can sneak into warehouses, like our cells that are packed with all the tools and raw materials, that they need to copy themselves. But when they do break in, viruses grow at an alarming rate. But growing fast comes at a cost. Just as if you try to type really fast, you'll make more typos. And when viruses copy their genetic material, spelling mistakes called mutations crop up in these copies. And this can alter the properties of the virus. For instance, these changes can facilitate a virus being able to jump from one species into another. Normally, viruses are very good at breaking into cells of a specific animal because they have keys designed to open those warehouses to unlock all the materials that they need to replicate. But if mutations arise that alter the properties of the virus and reshape its viral keys, then they can unlock cells of other organisms, enabling the virus to jump the species barrier and exploit a whole new group of animals, including us. 
And in the case of SARS-CoV-2, the patterns of previous outbreaks directed the initial search. The authorities immediately assumed it was through the food chain, just like SARS had been. They closed down the Huanan seafood market. A number of the early cases had connections to that market, but not all of them. And they tested the animals they found in the market. They tested the food in the market and they tested the surfaces and you know doorknobs, countertops, sewage, things like that. They found the virus on the surfaces, but they did not find it in any samples for sale in the market. And in fact, over the succeeding months, the Chinese authorities tested 80,000 animals all across China in an attempt to find an infected animal, as they very quickly found in the case of SARS. No ancestral version of the virus has been found in an animal apart from in human beings. So in the absence of an obvious animal on which to pin the origin of the COVID-19 virus, we return to what the genetic code of the virus can tell us. Is this virus, for instance, from the same source as its forebears, the original SARS or MERS viruses? That genetic code says not. These viruses are very different. When comparing SARS-CoV-2 to the original SARS virus, their genetic codes are 79.4% similar. While that sounds like a pretty high number, in genetic terms, that is about as similar as a human is to a cow. And when compared to MERS, this similarity drops to around 50%. So in order to find a closer relative, the genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 was compared to other documented coronaviruses already discovered in the wild. Jesse Bloom studies viral evolution at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre. So the two closest known relatives of SARS-CoV-2 are two different coronaviruses that were isolated from bats. So one of these viruses, the the first one that was known, is called RATG13, and that was a virus that was sequenced at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they had collected it from a bat cave in Yunnan province. More recently, another virus similarly close to SARS-CoV-2 was discovered in Laos. These viruses are both about 96 to 97% identical to SARS-CoV-2, 96% the same is a lot closer. But how far apart in evolutionary terms is that missing 4%? In other words, given the rate at which coronaviruses evolve, how long would it take to fill that genetic gap? The answer is still a very long time. That corresponds at sort of the evolutionary timescale of a number of decades, let's say 30 to 50 years of, of time from which they diverged. It's also really important to emphasize that something like RATG13 is not the ancestor of SARS-CoV-2. The relationship between SARS-CoV-2 and these bat viruses is like the relationship between, let's say, you and your cousin. Neither you or your cousin are descended from each other, but you have a common ancestor. I was just going to say, it's a bit like we, we know chimpanzees and humans share a very high fraction of our genetic material. It's not that we have descended from them, it's just that we have descended from a common ancestor. We both shared an ancestor back in history. So that argues then there must be some kind of of virus back in history that gave rise to SARS-CoV-2 and to these viruses you've just mentioned. So where is it then? It's not known. I mean, like I said, these two closest known relatives to SARS-CoV-2 were from bats that were in Laos or uh, Yunnan province, both of which are actually fairly far away from Wuhan. So it's believed that the ancestor of SARS-CoV-2 is probably a bat coronavirus that existed somewhere in this geographic area. But how that bat coronavirus got to Wuhan is what remains unclear. A close relative is a good starting point, but it still leaves us with questions. Where are the other relatives, for example? How did the mutations that we see in SARS-CoV-2 arise? Well, we're going to explore just that in a second. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Julia Ravey and Chris Smith. This week, we're exploring the question of where the COVID-19 pandemic virus came from. We found a close relative, but not close enough to tell us exactly where this virus came from. Jesse Bloom explains how this has led to two theories for how the virus has acquired its seemingly novel genetic changes. Well, there are two possible theories. One possible theory is that somehow it got there by natural infection. Let's say it naturally infected some human who traveled there or some animal that was moved there. Uh, And the other possibility is it's known that there were a number of labs in Wuhan that were collecting large numbers of these 
bat SARS-related coronaviruses and bringing them back to Wuhan to study. So it's also possible that scientists collected a similar virus, brought it back to Wuhan, and then there was some sort of accident. Almost all major outbreaks of infectious diseases in humans have occurred when viruses, bacteria or parasites jump from an animal into a human. The Black Death in the Middle Ages, the most deadly pandemic in recorded history, was caused by a bacterium that spread from wild prairie dogs into black rats, then to their fleas and ultimately to us humans. Flu pandemics begin in birds. And as we heard with SARS and MERS, both viruses originated in horseshoe bats and via two different intermediate species, palm civets and camels, were able to find themselves inside a human host. This evolutionary spillover has been the leading theory behind the differences we observe in the SARS-CoV-2 genome. Aris Katsuarchus explains. In the hunt for trying to work out where these viruses, the lineage are called Sarbacoviruses, have come from, Scientists have read the genome of isolates of SARS-CoV-2 and they've compared that to other viruses that are genetically related to SARS-CoV-2 and tried to use that to disentangle these kinds of patterns of transmission. So by comparing the sequence to similar sequences in bats or pangolins or other mammals that harbour Sarbacoviruses, we can produce an evolutionary tree and try and work out where within this diversity of viruses, SARS-CoV-2 sits. It's generally nested in a lineage of viruses that includes lots of bat viruses. And so while we're we're not necessarily able to have the one precise bat that led to the transmission to SARS-CoV-2 and to COVID, it certainly seems to be the case that this is part of a larger family of viruses that, that includes lots of viruses found in bats. Researchers have been working tirelessly to find a closer relative of SARS-CoV-2 in the wild, as this could bring us closer to where this virus made the jump. I think it's probably fair to say that people have been sampling as intensely as they possibly can for this virus, subject to the constraints and the realities of the fact that, you know, you, you can't pick out every single mammal. One thing that is sometimes the case, the real clear example of direct ancestry, is when your sampled sequences kind of form a comb-like structure in your phylogenetics tree with your one sequence of interest sticking out from the tip of that comb. We don't exactly have that for SARS-CoV-2, but we certainly have a lot of bat-like viruses surrounding these sequences of interest. While we still haven't found these intermediates or closer relatives we would expect to see if a virus had made a jump from animals to humans, that doesn't mean it isn't out there. If you think about HIV... And the search for the ancestor of HIV, it took quite a while to find the exact lineages of chimpanzee, for example, that are most closely related to circulating HIV. And finding the direct ancestor, you know, the actual chimp behind the bush that gave that initial transmission event, that's not something that we still have. We don't have that one perfect sequence there, although it's completely obvious now that there has been transmission from chimpanzees for HIV-1. And With SARS-1, we also saw a series of false dawns in the search for an ancestor of that outbreak. It took a while to settle on the most likely source species. So it's it's just a matter of the the vastness of the range. I mean, there are over a thousand species of bats, and there are so many different colonies to sample that actually really finding that one direct ancestor is, it it might be impossible. So just because we haven't found it yet doesn't mean that it doesn't exist? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Some of the other reasons researchers are still convinced this virus emerged from nature has come from information that revealed rare animals which can host coronaviruses had been present in wet markets in Wuhan, which may make it very difficult to find the intermediate scientists are after. In addition, early tracking of the virus suggests it may have been present in multiple wet markets at once, potentially indicating a batch of animals or different traders were the sources of infection. And so work is continuing to try to find a natural reservoir of a closer relative of SARS-CoV-2. But as the search continues for the ancestors of SARS-CoV-2 in the wild, another hypothesis has circulated. The virus leaked from a lab. When first proposed, many dismissed the idea out of hand. On the grounds, there already seemed to be a reasonable explanation for how the virus emerged. 
But the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 is an escaped laboratory experiment has gone back up the agenda with the discovery in recent months of new evidence of the kinds of experiments that were being conducted or at least proposed at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This kind of work is vital to understand the pandemic potential of some infectious diseases. But as David Matthews, who studies MERS at his Bristol lab, explains, this kind of work needs to be conducted very carefully. We have a high containment facility here, containment level three. It's airtight, it's sealed, it has an air handling system that sterilises the air inside the room. Only sterile air leaves the room, so nothing escapes. And then within that room, we have another cabinet, which is called a class three cabinet, which is the sort of thing you see in Hollywood movies where you've got a, a sealed box with giant rubber gloves that you sort of stick in and there's airlocks and techniques for passing things in and out. Anything that leaves that contained box has to be sprayed down with a bleach solution and left for 15 minutes. And even before we do all that, we have to do a series of experiments to prove that our techniques for sterilizing things actually do kill viruses. It's a series of of layered defence between yourself and the dangerous virus. But where there are humans, there are, of course, potential or real errors. Lab leaks have happened before in the case, for example, of foot and mouth. Alina Chan, who's a scientific advisor at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard and co-author with Matt Ridley of Viral, the search for the origin of COVID-19, explains. We know that lab leaks occur quite frequently and, and accidents happen to even the most highly trained people. But as long as there's human error, there's a chance for a virus to escape from a lab. And this was demonstrated in the recent lab leak of SARS-CoV-2 in Taiwan in, in late 2021. There was a researcher in her 20s. She was fully vaccinated with Moderna, but she had been bitten by a mouse at least twice in that lab. She was diagnosed on December 9, 2021, and Taiwan immediately launched an investigation into the lab as well as all of her contacts. Within 12 days, they had already publicly announced that they had concluded the investigation to the lab. They said it was definitely from the lab. They went into that biosafety level 3 lab where the animal work had been done, and they found contamination all over the place. And they also identified several flaws in protocol where there were human error. So we know that it can happen. Wuhan House is one of the leading laboratories in the world for studying SARS-like viruses, which is important to take into account. With SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, we know that it occurred on the doorsteps of a lab in Wuhan City that had a long history of collecting SARS-like viruses. So the question is, did it come from the laboratory in that city? Are there any other explanations, though? Because one must be cautious about the difference between cause and association if one asked, do fire engines cause fires? Because I always see fire engines where I see fires. I could draw the wrong conclusion. Are there other possibilities? COVID-19 was detected in the city where they had the world's best expertise at tracking SARS-like viruses. And they had spent the last decade, at least, searching through South China and Southeast Asia, where these viruses were known to be found. The spillover zone for SARS-like viruses is down south, like thousands of kilometers south. So it's not impossible that an animal was infected and, and somehow transported all the way up a thousand kilometers up into Wuhan and only caused an outbreak there. But I'd say that the odds are pretty low. Were the agents, meaning the samples, the possible viruses, were they similar enough to what we see now causing COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, for that to be a reasonable prospect? Or were they studying viruses that were so different that the chances of what they were collecting turning into the causative agent behind COVID-19 so remote as to be impossibly likely? We now know, based on the work of independent analysts and scientists, that when COVID-19 was detected in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology had in their hands at least nine of the closest relatives to SARS-CoV-2 at that time. So there is a lot of circumstantial evidence, I would say, that warrants a deep investigation into a lab origin of COVID-19. In terms of the research they were then doing on these viruses to further study them, what were they actually doing? Their purpose was to predict future outbreaks. And to do so, their aim was to collect and study as many viruses from the wild as possible. And after they collect these samples, tens of thousands of samples, they are sent back to Wuhan City. And in the lab, they take these samples and they sequence it. So they try and see what viruses are in here. And if possible, they try to grow to extract the virus out of these samples. Speculation has circulated around the exact work which was going on to grow these viruses. 
Certain viruses are notoriously hard to culture in a lab. By altering the genetic sequence, this can then enhance its ability to grow, making it easier to study. One theory was that SARS-CoV-2 emerged as a hybrid of other coronaviruses being grown. But Jesse Bloom suggests this is unlikely. I don't think that's possible because if SARS-CoV-2 looked like two known viruses, part of it looked like one and part of it looked like the other, then we could say the scenario you're saying. But compared to the closest known viruses, SARS-CoV-2 has the mutations scattered across the whole genome. So this sort of recombinational mixing can't explain it. Whatever SARS-CoV-2 is directly descended from is a virus for which we don't yet know the sequence. Another point of contention when trying to deduce if SARS-CoV-2 arose naturally or was synthetically manipulated comes from certain sequences inside its genetic material. Specifically, SARS-CoV-2 contains a structure called a furin cleavage site. This is a bit like a pin in a grenade. When this furin pin is pulled, the virus is primed to infect. Some coronaviruses naturally have these and they do boost infectivity enormously. But critically, none of the closest relatives of SARS-CoV-2 that we've found have them. And this is what initially made people very suspicious. Alina Chan again. Without this furin cleavage site, the virus could have never caused a pandemic. And we know that now from studying the virus, if you take out this cleavage site, it's completely attenuated. So it can barely cause disease, it's barely transmissible. So the question is, how did it appear in SARS-CoV-2? The reason why some people find the furin cleavage site very suspicious is that if you look at all SARS-like viruses characterized to date, only SARS-CoV-2 has this furin cleavage site. So the question is, was it natural? Was it just a a freak accident in nature? Or was it put in by a, a lab? Now, as furin cleavage sites are found in the wider coronavirus family, they do naturally occur in these viruses. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that this powerful genetic infectivity boost could have cropped up in the COVID-19 virus by chance. But a leaked grant proposal that surfaced only recently and which involved the Wuhan Institute of Virology and collaborators in the US is very grave cause for concern. In late 2021, it was released a grant proposal called the DARPA Diffuse Proposal, which showed that a group of scientists were proposing to introduce furin cleavage sites into SARS-related coronaviruses. That particular proposal was not funded, and it's unknown if that work ever happened. But I think at this point, we certainly know that furin cleavage sites can arise in coronaviruses and that there are scientists out there who are interested in engineering them into coronaviruses. Now, we don't know if this kind of work was actually being carried out on SARS-like coronaviruses, which is why, Alina Chan points out, investigation is urgently warranted. This group of researchers say that they're going to put horns on horses and about two years later, a unicorn shows up in their city. So based on that striking coincidence, there's a need to investigate. As the quest for finding the origin of SARS-CoV-2 continues, it's important to be open-minded. While we haven't found the SARS-CoV-2 intermediates we would expect to see in the wild yet, sampling numbers or the inability to look in certain animals may mean a closer relation could exist. And although looking at the genetic changes in the virus's code can give us clues as to where it emerged from, David Matthews points out... I don't think there's anything in the sequence there that says to you, oh, this has definitely been put in artificially by people. There's no secret. If you shine a light on it in a funny direction, you can see that it's been artificially made. So the presence of the furin site, I don't think actually means anything. Other viruses have these kinds of sequences and they have evolved independently in the past in in different circumstances. But exactly where it came from, I don't think it leaves us any the wiser at this stage. And until a similar species in the wild is revealed, it may be hard to come to an answer. Ultimately, until we actually stumble across the progenitor virus that was in an animal before it jumped into us, it's really difficult to be certain exactly how the virus made the adaptations. David Matthews. But as Alina Chan points out, it can't be ignored that the initial epicentre of the COVID outbreak was in the very same city that's home to a world-leading institute studying these very same pathogens and situated nowhere near where the only close relatives of the COVID-19 virus that we've found so far actually come from. Moreover, the lab and the Chinese government more broadly, have not made it easy for the scientific community or the World Health Organization to get the answers they're looking for. Genetic databases and published theses documenting the viruses being studied in China have been withdrawn without explanation, and the publication of other crucial details germane to the story have been very slow to emerge, frustrating efforts to piece together what really happened. It's prompted some to ask, 
Well, if there's nothing to hide, why hide it? Matt Ridley again. We know that information has dribbled out about the experiments that were going on and indeed about the viruses that they held in their freezers uh, in Wuhan. All of this could have been discussed much more openly and transparently, and it might have led to us understanding how this virus got into human beings, but it might also have given us information in time to stop the virus turning into a global pandemic when it was still just a local outbreak. And we are still unable to come to a conclusion about the origin of SARS-CoV-2 because certain pieces of the puzzle remain missing. We don't know how this pandemic originated. We have no direct evidence for an animal spillover, a natural event in a market or something like that. We have no direct evidence for a laboratory accident either. So we need to find out because it's absolutely vital we do find out so that we can prevent the next pandemic and also as a tribute to the people who've died in this pandemic. There are questions we still need answers to, like how did this virus get to Wuhan? Jesse Bloom suggests how we could better understand these events. One way to answer that question would be more transparency about both what was going on in animal markets at Wuhan and what was going on in labs in Wuhan. And unfortunately, there's a depressing paucity of information on that topic. And we also need more time. Alina Chang. So I think that we need to be patient because investigating the origin of a pandemic can take a long time. And we cannot wait to investigate the lab origin only after spending like 10 years looking for the bat that gave us SARS-CoV-2. Both have to be investigated in parallel. While there are different proposed avenues for how SARS-CoV-2 came to be, with varying levels of evidence, exploring multiple lines of inquiry might be the way forward. We can see that both of these are legitimate possibilities. It's certainly possible this pandemic had a natural cause, and it's possible that this pandemic was caused by a lab accident. And I also think we're quite likely to see future viral pandemics. So what I hope we can do as scientists is come up with good ways to you know, continue to develop strategies that will minimise the risk of a future pandemic ever coming from either a lab accident or from a natural zoonosis. At the time of recording, we're awaiting guidance from the Scientific Advisory Group for Origins of Novel Pathogens, SAGO, who are going to provide the World Health Organization with recommendations for what should be done in trying to figure out where SARS-CoV-2 came from and how we can prevent the emergence of new and threatening pathogens in the future. We'll keep you updated on what that report suggests. So at the moment, the jury is still out on where SARS-CoV-2 came from. But for the sake of preventing future pandemics, we hope we can eventually get to the bottom of it. Well, let's hope so. And now let's finish on a slightly lighter note by reflecting, and you'll see why I said that in a minute, on the science behind the Hubble Space Telescope for our question of the week. This time, Otis Kingsman is helping Daniel solve this conundrum. How do they stop the mirror on the Hubble telescope from getting dirty? A fascinating question, Daniel. The Hubble telescope has been orbiting 550 kilometres above the Earth for almost 31 years now. It's a wonder how it would be maintained and cleaned at that altitude. Fortunately, Sarah Kendrew from the European Space Agency is here to shed some light on your question. So the short answer is we don't have to clean it Despite what we hear about dust and debris in space, space is actually extremely empty and clean in terms of particles sticking to the surface of the mirror. Outside of the Earth's atmosphere, there's also no moisture and no molecules that can cause corrosion or degradation of the mirror. A risk Hubble does face is impacts from micrometeorites. These are tiny specks, smaller than sand grains, that have typically been chipped off or eroded off from asteroids in the solar system, or sometimes also materials from launched rockets and other broken satellites. Those types of impacts do happen quite regularly, and they can cause some weathering and damage over time. While these grains are small, the lack of air resistance in space causes these micrometeors to travel very fast before colliding with the telescope. Fortunately, there are a few integrated features to help avoid impacts with the mirror. The design of the Hubble telescope includes a kind of tube-like structure to protect the mirror and other optics. So these micrometeorites typically collide with the tube or you know, the outer material. The damage is mainly seen on solar panels and on the outer covering materials. This space debris has caused five separate missions between 1993 and 2009 to replace parts of the telescope. 
Thankfully, these broken pieces haven't been simply discarded. So from the parts that were returned to Earth after servicing missions of Hubble, scientists were actually able to study how many of these impacts had occurred and what kind of materials the meteorites were made of. And that's helped us like really understand the low Earth orbit environment, understand better what kinds of particles are out there and how much risk they pose to satellites, and in turn, design our spacecraft and our satellites to be better protected against uh, those impacts. So, Daniel, the Hubble telescope is prevented from getting dirty by the natural lack of particles in space to stick to the surface, alongside the careful construction of the outer shell to protect it. Thanks to this, we can still get fantastic pictures of our galaxy 31 years after its first launch, without needing to clean the mirror. Next week, we'll be answering this question from listener Christoph. Why don't plants freeze to death during winter? Do you know the answer? Or have you got a question you'd like us to solve? If you want to get in touch or get involved, join in the debate on the forum. It's nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And that's it for today. But your favourite science show will be back at the same time next week, where we'll be delving into the mailbag to answer the science questions you've been sending in. Speaking of which, if there's a scientific itch you'd like us to scratch for you, you can send your comments or questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll take a look. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.